Hello and welcome to History with Jackson. So today, guys, we have a very special episode of the English and British Monarch series. And we have Chris or at Chris Riley History with us today as we are going to compare and look at Henry V and Henry VI. So how are you doing, Chris? I'm not too bad, Jackson. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks, man. So good, good. I'm really looking forward to talking about Henry V year because it's not one of the areas that I've looked at before. So I think it's going to be quite cool just to compare some of our favourite historical areas. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Henry V comes right at the end of my period usually, but um, yeah, you can't really study medieval England and not uh, and not get on to uh, Henry V. No, 100%. And definitely like Henry VI is probably my, one of my only medieval eras, so... It's quite nice to talk about him when you're talking about modern yeah. stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah, so, definitely. So very quickly, as we have someone from the Historians Magazine with us, and the Historians Magazine do sponsor the History of Jackson uh, podcast or YouTube at this time, would you like to tell us some more about the Historians Magazine, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, um, the Historians Magazine was started pretty much a year ago um, right now. Um, myself and a couple of other like-minded um, kind of historians who met through social media um, began putting together a magazine with essentially submitted content from from you know people like you know yourselves might be listening to or watching this now. Uh, we cover all sorts of topics uh, throughout history. Um, the current edition that is, as far as I know, going to print tomorrow. I might be wrong, is our Christmas edition or our kind of winter wonderland edition, um, which both myself and Jackson have actually written the features for. Um, I've covered um, ancient and medieval Christmas traditions and Jackson has covered the Christmas trees of 1914. Um, edition six, which will be coming out in February next year, is all about uh, LGBTQ plus history an area of history that um, up until very recently has probably not had the light that it deserves to be shined on it. Um, so we're looking forward to that one. And then edition seven will be all things Tudor, um, a complete Tudor uh, edition with a, a collaboration with all things Tudor. Um, speaking of the magazine though, um, we are very, very pleased to announce that Jackson will be joining our editorial team. Uh, going forward in the new year so um, yeah Jackson has been a avid contributor uh, in terms of content and to be honest generally just being sound um, with, with helping out and stuff so it was only natural that the uh, the two colossal forces of History of Jackson and Historians Magazine would come together at some point. Well that was a very sweet announcement Chris thanks <laughs> yeah I'm really looking forward to getting involved with the magazine and looking over people's articles and working with you guys in the editorial team you know I've I've had experience writing, so now it's time to experience the other side as well. So hopefully it'll be a good it'll be a good thing between us. So I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. Me too. So without further ado, Chris, can you tell us who Henry V was and what he was like? Yes, I can. Yes. So I guess Henry V is perhaps one of the most well-known names in medieval kingship as such but maybe not the most well known of of reigns it's a very very short reign um but i guess we'll 
we'll start at the beginning. You know, like you said, who who was Henry V? So before he was Henry V, uh, he was Henry of Monmouth. Um, he was born in either 1386 or 1387. Even he didn't know the year of his birth. Uh, at Monmouth Castle in South Wales. Um, he was the son of um, Henry Bolingbroke, who would eventually become Henry IV of England after, for lack of a better word, usurping the throne from his, um, from his cousin, Richard II. Uh, and his mother was Mary de Bowen, who was the daughter of the Earl of Hereford. Um, Henry was not born to be a king, um, whereas most kings up until that point, uh, or most future kings, sorry, were, you know, born into this idea of, I will eventually inherit my father's throne as such. You know, Edward I, Edward II, Edward III, um, to some degree, were all born into that position of, I will be the next king, whereas Henry V, or we'll, you know, we'll call him Prince Henry, or no, we won't even call him Prince Henry at this point. We'll call him Henry. Um, he was, you know, absolutely, he was very, very important. He was the grandson of John of Gaunt, so the great-grandson, one of the many great-grandchildren of Edward III. Um, so he was, you know, tip of, the, tip of the top when it comes to nobility in England, but not really anywhere to do with the throne um, until a series of political moves and strange events kind of kind of put him there um so yeah i said he was born like i said nobody really knows where he was when he was born so dating henry is a little bit difficult um for the sake of this we'll say 1386 september 1386 in wales in terms of henry what did he look like he the thing with with describing medieval kings or medieval people in general is as you'll probably know, Jackson, the, the way people described people was generally quite general. I realize I use the word people in general yeah. about six times then. But everybody was, every, you know, woman was the fairest and most beautiful. Every, you know, bloke was the most handsome and strong. We're getting towards this point where we're getting a little bit more of a description. Um, portraiture is becoming more well-known. Uh, famously, Richard II, um, is the first English monarch to have a lifelike portrait um, taken of him. Um, so yeah, we we again, this is going on what 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 was written about Henry. There's no real way to to, to prove it. But he was supposedly about six foot three, which even these days I'm five foot six myself. I'm a little lad. <laughs> six three is quite big. I'm I taller right. than me as well. So. I was going to say. I know you're on the taller side, but um, he was about, he was apparently about 6'3". Um, but he was just considered very tall. Um, he had a long face and a straight nose and a broad forehead. I don't know if that's a good thing. It's uh, a bizarre thing a to go bad with. Thing. Um, very specific things to pick out. Um, he does have a very, very famous haircut, which in a way I'm kind of sporting myself today. Out of laziness, not out of any piety that Henry wore, but he wore a very, very famous cropped haircut that most people, when they think of Henry V, they probably indirectly think of the famous portrait um, of a very strange looking man with a very, like from that angle, with a very strange um, cropped haircut. Um, 
famously in the recent um, film, The King, starring Timothy, that's a mouthful, Timothy Charlemagne as Henry V himself. Um, I actually did a podcast with Ollie over at the History Emporium podcast, and he mentioned the, the haircut, and he said, is that historically accurate? Is he's a very modern haircut, you know, a very, very short cropped haircut with, you know, um, virtually no hair on the back and sides. And no, it's a fairly common common haircut, and it was associated with uh, with piety more than anything, more than looking cool like people would have today. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's kind of one of his most famous features. Um, another famous feature of Henry was the scar on his cheek, which again, the King does a good job of having that in the film. There are a couple of issues with that film, but one of them is not showing that they do actually show the, the arrow wound that he has in his cheek. Uh, at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403, when Henry was terrible at maths, a teenager, let's say, he was shot in the face by an arrow, which sounds pretty awful, if I'm honest. It sounds terrible. Um, but famously, the arrow went six inches deep into his skull, which I didn't even know my head was like six inches deep. <laughs> so you can imagine how far that's going into someone's face. Um, and famously, they had to keep this womb open. It's very, very dangerous. Obviously, medieval, anybody that knows anything about medieval medicine is it was very, very limited based on essentially ancient ancient um methods of you know the four humors and things like that and um, so they basically invented a very specific pair of forceps as such um to go into henry's face to pull out the broken arrowhead and somehow obviously he survived that but he was i'm assuming fairly self-conscious about a scar on his face um, and famously, I don't know how famous, I don't know how true this is, but any, every time after 1403, he was drawn or, you know, a portrait was made of him. He faced the other way, even though you could just ask the guy who was painting you, can you just ignore that? He was very keen on being painted from the other side to, to not show his face. Um, so yeah, he, like I said, wasn't born to be king, was born in Wales got shot in the face and had a short haircut. I hope people have taken more from that little <laughs> intro to Henry than, uh, than that, but I guess that's top line stuff. Yeah, and you, and you can imagine, you know, it was quite a big scar on his face as well. Like that's it's had to stay open and there's been an arrowhead in it. But yeah. he's, he's such a juxtaposition to his son, really. Um, where Henry yeah. VI was, he was born on 6th December uh, 1421 to you know, Henry and his, his wife, Catherine of Alois. Uh, at Windsor Castle, and he was he was born to be king, um, not like Henry, who was born into nobility. So there's very different expectations on on Henry there. Uh, and he also, unlike his father, he grew to only be five nine, which you know nowadays is I'd an average. Take. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would, but <laughs> yeah, I would. I mean, that's 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 an average height. Um, and it's 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 a good height for them, but you know, there's when your father was six three, uh, this epitome of a medieval warrior king. You know, it's a it's a it's a massive juxtaposition. Um, and he was still slight, but he was described as strong, which, like you said, Chris, you know, we kind of got to take for with a pinch of salt, really, because we know he's a king. It's gonna it's gonna benefit you to say that he's a strong man, even if he isn't. Um, but. He was different from his father. 
he was he was deeply pious. He was a timid man. He was passive. You know, he didn't like fighting. Um, and he was just good hearted. He was apparently just a good man. Uh, he was adverse to violence, didn't like fighting or war at all. Uh, and we'll see that later on when we talk about Henry's reign. But crucially, what plagued Henry's kind of reign and his his adulthood really was his severe mental health issues. Um, he kind of suffered from schizophrenia, uh, depression, uh, mutism, and it is thought that he he inherited this from his mother's father. So his his grandfather, I think Charles the Sixth of yeah. of France. So there's a lot of issues there that are being passed down genetically. And they also think some of these issues came down from his father's side as well. So there's a lot going on there. And he's a massive, massive juxtaposition to his father, really. I think they're both, I think ju juxtaposition is the right word. They're both completely polar opposites in a sense of physical description, success, not to kind of spoil the end of this, yeah. of this episode, but you know, of, of perception. Um, and yeah, I mean, Henry V quickly was, was known to be a, a pious king, but he was no, he was born into a situation or he grew up in a situation that was incredibly hostile. Um, he grew up in the household and during the reign of Richard II, the pretty much the last direct, um, Plantagenet king, Richard III, whatever, we'll, we'll chat about you soon. Um, we'll, we'll get how messy this all get. This is straightforward. For anyone that doesn't know, thinks this is messy, no. Um, yeah, he, he was born into the, into the reign of Richard II, who was a, a, an incredibly ruthless king who had to deal with so much a war with France that was going poorly, the peasants' revolt, you know, in, the, in 1381, and Henry, Henry of Monmouth was born into the middle of this, and his father, the future Henry IV, um, you know, crossed paths and, and, and booked heads with, with Richard II, leading to his exile, Henry, the, Henry of Monmouth. There's a lot of Henrys, so I'm going to try and use as many titles yeah. as possible <laughs> just, to, just to clear them up. Um, there's at least three Henrys I can think of. That were all kings. Well, you, you're actually touching right. on my next. You're actually touching on my next question for you. Um, yes. You know, as as usually throughout these these videos, we tend to look at who was uh, and their early life. Um, now it's going to be very different for both of these kings, but Henry, like you just said, had a or Henry V. I'm going to say that one. Henry V had a very I'm trying to think of the right words to say it. Um, traumatic let's say traumatic and yeah traumatic earlier life before his reign mm. uh, so we've started to yeah. touch on it so you know what was what was happening in this early life where he was either prince or henry monmouth yeah i mean yeah it's difficult to to, to put a word on henry's you know upbringing and early life because yeah probably in hindsight it was incredibly traumatic for him um, obviously he was shot in the face when his father was already king at this point, but um, he was raised in the household of Richard II for a while. 
Um, he was also raised and educated by his uncle, Henry Beaufort, who, again, spoiler alert, is a, a, an important character in the, in the last, in the next kind of hundred years, really. Essentially, his line is incredibly important. Um, but he, like I said, he lived through the years of, of as, as an infant, um, the kind of later years and the, the repercussions of the, of the Peasants' Revolt um, that did happen before his birth. Um, but also during the um, Lords of Pelham, where Henry's father, Henry Bolingbroke, who was Earl of Derby at this point, and set to inherit the biggest dukedom in England, which is the uh, Duchy of Lancaster, who is father, John of Gaunt. Um, thank God he wasn't called Henry because this podcast would be even more Henry-filled. Um, yeah, Henry played a minor role in a essentially a political uprising that didn't go well for the people that you know went against Henry, uh, sorry, that went against Richard II, um, his father. So Henry Bolingbroke was exiled. Um, he fought a crusade in Lithuania with the um, Teutonic Knights, probably had a really great time for a, for a medieval knight. Um, an exile was, as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, there's way, way, way worse things to do when you're exiled like die, which many of them did, um, part of the Lord's Appellant. But yeah, Henry of Monmouth, Henry V, was, was probably used as a political pawn by, by Richard, um, especially after the death of John of Gaunt and the seizure of the Duchy of Lancaster by Richard. Um, obviously, this got um, Henry Bolingbroke in, you know, the, in his mind, the, the Duke of Lancaster, the second most powerful man in the kingdom uh, to the king. Uh, he returned in 1399 as Richard hopped over to Ireland, taking with him Henry of Monmouth, you know, arguably, you know, probably um, his biggest kind of political pawn at this point. Like, I've got your son. What are you going to do? Well, he succeeded in, in usurping, strangely, using Parliament, which was, I guess, for the for the early 15th century is quite a strange move, but using Parliament to remove Richard II from power, placing himself as a completely legitimate, you know, ancestor of Edward III, and just through a different line through John of Gaunt, um, placing himself on the throne, by default, having Henry of Monmouth, now Prince Henry of Wales, you know, Earl of Chester, getting all, you know, Duke of Aquitaine, all of these illustrious titles thrown at him. You know, it's like waking up one day and it's like, oh, by the way, you're now at the throne of, of England and, you know, Gascony and, and, and Lord of Ireland. So not just the fact that his childhood was, you know, filled with his, you know, Richard II's terrible reign, his eventual murder, Richard II murdered. Who knows? <laughs> that's a click. That's a clickbait video. Wait until happen. Um, you know, living through all of that and then going from, don't get me wrong, you know, the son of, even the son of the Earl of Derby, uh, especially the son of the Duke of Lancaster, an incredibly important man to the heir to the throne is probably quite a forming experience, but not in the same way that, you know, Henry VI, like I'm sure you'll touch on, like you said earlier, was, was born into this position of, you know, you, you are the heir to this throne amongst other things, and we'll get onto that. Um, so yeah, an incredibly forming 
childhood and, and early teenship, which was later you know built on when his Henry, when his father was king, because um, Henry the Fourth, Henry Bolingbroke, um, what was later known as, as I'm sure anyone can imagine, his his reign was filled with rebellion and you know putting down Welsh princes. Um, hence the shot in the face in 1403 at Shrewsbury, um, fighting um, Henry Percy, uh, who gives us a football team. I'm yeah, we sure don't, we you don't know mention, this. We don't mention that football oh, team. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you are an Arsenal fan. Yes, Henry Hotspur Percy gives us Tottenham Hotspur. Um, apparently, he was really popular in, uh, in North London or whatever North London was in the 15th century. Bizarrely, um, <laughs> yeah. He, he, he finished second in that as well, didn't he? So um, <laughs> anyway, no football because we've been told before me and Jackson we talk too much about sport. Um, but yeah, pretty mental first sort of what twenty years of his life. Yeah, and it's again, it's it's similar to in a way, it's similar to his sons, but in a very different way. Um, you know, they're both they're both incredibly important moments in their life that shape who they are. It's just that, and, and they're both equally as trauma, uh, traumatic, but very, very different in what was happening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Henry, not to spoil it, but Henry the fifth dies quite early. Um, and Henry the sixth comes to the throne very, very young. Uh, he comes to the throne at about one one years old on the 1st September 1421 he is crowned oh, he is declared king of England which as a one year old you've never known anything different in your in your early life you haven't had that that royal apprenticeship that a lot of kings would have had that Henry V had um, even Henry IV would have witnessed someone being king uh, but you know, Henry VI never witnessed anyone being king. He never had that apprenticeship and someone telling him how to be king. Uh, and then the following year in 1422, Henry is is declared king of France after Charles VI died. So I'm sure you'll touch on it later. Uh, but there is some kind of there's some kind of treaty that leads to this moment. So <laughs> I didn't want to spoil too much for you, Chris. Yeah. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, but this again, this is a incredibly difficult period for someone so young that is, you know, he's one years old and he's king of England, then he's three and he's king of France. And it's suddenly like, well, there's no role model there for him to to be taught how to be a king, how to taught how to be a man uh, or even a noble or a prince. So it's it's a difficult period. Mm. And in this period, you've got several powerful really really powerful nobles uh like the duke of bedford and duke of gloucester you'll probably tell us how they became so powerful uh but obviously they didn't like the french we're in the midst of the hundred years war which is you know it's a contested term isn't it really hundred years war or is it just several <laughs> but it's a giant european tussle that lasted 116 years in three different phases crossed about 18 different countries yeah it's ambiguous to say the least but it's it's a it's a nice clean term for us to look at but uh, yeah these these nobles didn't like the french and obviously because henry's mother was french 
Uh, they kept Henry away from his mother. Um, so he formed very little bond with her. These nobles didn't trust her. So instead, he was raised by Richard Beecham, the Earl of Warwick, and John Somerset, who was you know, one of the most important people in the royal household at this point. Um, so he had a very religious upbringing, but a very deeply educated um, upbringing. So he, most people describe him as like a Renaissance prince in terms of it, his you know, piety and his education. So very clever, very, very religious, but just no, no warrior part of him, really. Um, and that's kind of plagued him throughout his reign. But, you know, because he's had no bond with his mother, he's being raised away from her. That kind of, that's, you know, part of my teaching um, qualifications that we're looking at attachment issues um, and how that can affect children and lead to later mental health issues. And of course, he would have been raised by either a wet nurse or someone as, as, uh, as people usually were at those points. But to be taken away from his mother at such a young age would have had a massive effect on him and because he was so young he had to have a regency council to kind of govern england and protect france until he was of age now as as chris will know most historians know regency councils during minorities um they haven't had the greatest of success and um, would you agree with that i'd, I'd say that's a, a fair point to say the least yeah I mean, they, they lead to political infighting between nobles. Um, they kind of ruin the beginning or the personal rule of a king because they have to fix the mess that was left for them. Uh, but key nobles in this um, Regency Council were the same ones that we touched on earlier. It's the Duke of Bedford, the Duke of Gloucester and Cardinal Beaufort. These were the most important figures politically at this point. They kind of govern govern England at this point they they look after France they protect what Henry V had gained in France um and for a time they do a good job um but unfortunately at a young age Duke of Bedford dies uh, and it kind of all gets messed up from there really where there's a lot of infighting over who should take control of these regency councils who should take control of France uh, and a lot of that spills into Henry's personal rule. But then when Henry is seven, he's only seven, he's coronated as the King of England. And when he is 10, to counteract Charles VII of France, Henry is also crowned. He's the only English king to ever be crowned King of England, or King of, king of France, actually. This is King of France, uh, and actually in France as well, it was at Notre Dame in Paris. So that's a, that was a massive, massive moment in English history, really. Um, and it's all because of Henry V. But yeah, um, very, very traumatic and difficult upbringing for Henry VI on a different level. Uh, and we see his his personal rule end in four, well, begin in 1437 after taking some control at 14. So very different from uh, Henry V. Yeah, I think, I think you made a, you touched on a good point about education. And, and I think we're seeing here at the start of the 15th century that the transition from a purely, not purely, mostly warrior king, you know, Edward III, Edward I, you know, Hammer of the Scots, 
to this, you know, Renaissance prince that is usually attributed to maybe Henry VIII. But I think there are definitely at least the seeds are being sown of this, you know, more worldly education. You know, Henry Henry V, even as a, you know, the son of a son of an earl and later duke, was, you know, fluent in French, the language of court, Latin. And interestingly, if you're a historian of this period, English, which for a little bit of context, you know, up until, you know, Edward III, English was virtually never spoken by the royal family and, and very, you know, a little bit maybe more by the, by the nobles. But, you know, Henry IV wasn't raised to be king. The English vernacular language was more common in his house. And therefore, when he, you know, when Henry V was growing up, English was then even more so important. So we're now starting to see a more anglicized, as, as strange as that sounds to, you know, to maybe a, a casual listener. It's, you know, the language of court and the way court was, was incredibly French. Um, so to be um, fluent in, in both French and English shows a, shows a clear transition from, uh, you know, the high medieval period to not to get too technical to the kind of late medieval. Um, I don't really care about dating things specifically <laughs> in, into the into the early, you know, Renaissance, early modern, whatever you want to call it. Um, but but it's yeah, still again, that hangover. It's still that hangover yeah. from the Norman period as well, where these are Norman kings. Uh, they are the Plantagenets uh, or the Angevin kings, whichever one you want to, to give them. But they're, they're still French French people, Frenchmen, who are English-born, mostly, ruling England. And I think we're starting to see that English rule of England emerge. Yeah, so definitely, definitely. You touch on Henry's court, uh, and that forms, forms part of his rule, really. It's part of his reign. His court is an incredibly important part of a king's reign. Can you tell us what Henry, Henry's reign was like? Uh, I know it was a, a shorter one than some kings, but it was incredibly entertaining in a way. Um, yeah. And important to English history as well. Yeah, I think entertaining is probably the best way to describe Henry V's range. Reign, sorry, not range. I mean, you may have had range, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, obviously, it gives us one of Shakespeare's, in my opinion, greatest works, Henry V. Um, but, you know, like I touched on earlier, his father's reign was filled with, you know, rebellions, uh, famously um, the Welsh rebellions of uh, the early part of his reign. Um, but maybe coincidentally, as, you know, Henry takes over the reins in uh, 1413 after his father dies, um, things are starting to become a little bit more politically stable. You know, for the last 20 years, essentially, England has been dealing with the hangover of Richard II's reign. Government has been all over the place, essentially, since the, you know, the death of Edward III in 1377. So for the best part of 50 years, things have been a little bit all over the place. So Henry V is now crowned. He is he has grown up in this incredibly aggressive, volatile environment. He's seen his dad, his dad, weird word to his father, it's a bit more formal. Um, he's, he's seen his father become incredibly paranoid and skeptical of people around him and 
um, eventually dies of a stroke, um, I said in 1413. Um, Henry's early reign starts off with a rather big moment pretty much straight off. And I'm not talking about that big moment that <laughs> everybody knows. Um, I'm talking about, and this is, becomes a kind of a running theme for the next, you know, 100 years, pretty much the next what, 70 years, is it's an attempt to put somebody else um, on the throne. He ends up executing his cousin, um, the Earl of Cambridge, um, among some other nobles for uh, a trying to put Edmund Mortimer, who may or may not have been the heir to Richard II. And again, it gets very, very messy in terms of, well, Jackson's period of, of choice, which is the Wars of the Roses. Um, you know, Edmund Mortimer and the Mortimer line through um, eventually becomes the House of York um, through Cambridge as well. Um, but yeah, Henry has to make some pretty big decisions early on to, you know, like kind of, you know, make his play early. And he, he's, he's notoriously ruthless. You know, having to execute nobles is one thing, but when they are your, you know, cousins, you know, your friends probably as well, uh, again, another forming moment. Um, and that happens pretty much within the first few years of his reign. Um, like you said, Jackson, his reign is incredibly short, realistically. Um, not the shortest, but by no stretch of the imagination, yeah, the longest. Um, the thing that most people associate Henry's reign with is the Agincourt campaign of 1415. Um, as we've mentioned previously, Hundred Years' War is in its, you know, so many stages, pretty much right in the middle. It ends, you know, 1453 for most people. An interesting argument that it ended at the Battle of Bosworth, though, but we'll touch on that later. Um, Edward III, arguably England's greatest warrior king. I'll throw that out there. Um, up until that point, it probably led the most successful campaigns in France. Um, for context, the Hundred Years' War is based around Edward III's claim to the French crown through his mother. And Richard II, Edward III's grandson, had somewhat attempted to keep that flame alive, but wasn't really you know, able to make any gains. And if anything, they just made a series of losses. But again, was that the failure to, you know, was it, was it ever ever a winnable war but again I'm getting way ahead of myself um, but Henry IV wanted to have a war with France desperately um, it was the thing to do if you were an English king um, but he had so much going on at home with the rebellions and you know his 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 nobles you know the, the Percy rebellion and things like that that by that point he had no chance he had no time to attack France as silly as it sounds he ran out of time um, but Henry V much more secure at home, was able to launch his invasion of France in um, the autumn of 1415. Um, I will go deeper into the, the Agincourt campaign later, um, but it's a very famous campaign. Um, it's, again, like I said, it, it forms the backbone of Shakespeare, one of Shakespeare's most famous and well-known and beloved plays. Um, and yeah, essentially, again, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but We'll touch on these points later. Henry was able to win an incredible victory at Agincourt, 
um, beating a much larger force. And through a series of, of further invasions in sort of 1417 and 1419, he was able to capture Rouen, the capital of Normandy, and essentially bring the, the French crown to its knees, which for context was already fairly weak. Um, as you touched on before, Charles VI of France was known to have pretty debilitating you know, mental illness. You know, he thought his bones were made of glass. Um, he was incredibly paranoid and schizophrenic. Um, and you know, there was court factions in France between the you know the Burgundians. There was there was people all over the place trying to you know gain power. And England was essentially in the best position at the best time, with arguably the best man for the job in Henry V to to really take advantage of the position that they were they were in. Um, which, I also you know like, I also think it's incredibly important because um, I don't I don't think I've mentioned this either. Um, that when we look at France as a kingdom at this point, it's not ruled like, like England at all. England's set up more like a duchy uh, at this point because of William the Conqueror. Um, so the French king had a lot, um, had a lot of different nobles and barons and dukes and so on and counts who each in their own right had their own massive land territories which were incredibly powerful way more powerful than the french king who was you know a figurehead of sorts for the country based in the ile de france around paris so it's not a very it's not as strong a position as the english kings had at home yeah that's a that's a good that's a great point and i think this period in in you know 1415 1420 let's say was probably when the french crown let's say rather than France, was probably at one of its weakest in its history. Um, you know, in the periods of history, you know, a few hundred years before this, you know, Henry II was able to, you know, control Aquitaine, Normandy, you know, Anjou, uh, Poitou, all this massive, more of France and the French crown. Um, and it's, it's a really important point when, when discussing, you know, medieval England and France is, England was, for the most part, a United Kingdom, not that one. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas France, you know, like you said, Jackson was a was a collection of of baronies and duchies and incredibly powerful, you know, factions that were all vying for position, um, which just laid the foundations for a man like Henry V to, you know, with with financial resources and military might. Um, to sweep France essentially, which culminated in, as you mentioned earlier, the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, which is one of the most insane treaties, if you think, as from an English point of view, and probably from a French point of view as well. From an English point of view, you know, a treaty that says for the for the remaining years of, of Charles VI's reign, Henry V of England would essentially be the regent of France. And upon the death of Charles VI, Henry V and his heirs would then inherit the French crown. You know, it wasn't a, you know, a Treaty of Brittany 1360, which saw, you know, vast swathes of France gifted to Edward III. It was, mate, you're king of both. We're, we're done. You know, the, 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 the House of Alois 
has no claim to the French throne anymore. And that was, you know, paired with a marriage to Catherine of Valois, um, the mother of, of Henry VI. Uh, sixth. I really struggle with sixths. Um, God, there's only, yeah, there's only few in this story. There's only two. Um, but yeah, Henry's, Henry's reign, unfortunately, for some, maybe not for everybody, came, came shortly, um, sorry, came swiftly to an end um, after, you know, only a few years on the throne. Um, like you mentioned, he died in 1421, unfortunately, of dysentery on campaign in France at the age of 35 or 36, um, because we don't know again, we don't know how old he was, but either way, incredibly young. Um, he essentially died in the prime of his life, in the prime of his reign, when things were going pretty much the best it's ever gone for an English king in France. Uh, um, he was the pretty much, you know, the, the nailed on ruler of most of Normandy and northern France down into Aquitaine and Gascony, um, with the rest of France as a kingdom under his indirect control, just literally waiting for Charles VI to die, who, again, like you said, died. I think two months after Henry V. Yeah, something leaving, ridiculous like that, yeah. Leaving his nine-month-old son, Henry VI, to inherit not just a duchy, not just one kingdom, but two, if not the two biggest kingdoms, you know, outside of the Holy Roman Emperor Empire. So it's, it is a massive, massive deal, really, that treaty. Uh, it's incredibly yeah. important the history of both countries um and and for it to be negotiated so in such a beneficial way to england is is incredible um particularly when we look at where that war has been uh and how much of an upper hand the french did have but how did they get to that point of being able to have such a such a beneficial treaty really yeah, I mean, ultimately, it goes back to Agincourt, um, which I'm happy to talk about as oh, much yeah. as you will let we'll me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, have um, a, we'll have a rundown from Agincourt, because I haven't touched on it, so I'll be... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a fairly well-known... Again, like Henry V, it's a well-known name or title to a battle, but maybe the actual battle itself and its actual importance is maybe a little bit less known. Um, so like I said, his his that was later known as the Agincourt campaign of, of 1415 um, starts in the kind of late summer. Um, he, he is late to get started. You know, anybody that knows anything about medieval warfare is it's a summertime thing, a bit like cricket. You don't play it in winter um, <laughs> because it's a bit too wet and cold. So you have to pretty much get going fairly early. So um, Henry essentially whether this is true or not, I'm making this claim. I'm doing the thing that uni never lets me do and that's <laughs> my own opinion. I'm having my own opinion. Um, he seems to look at the campaigns of, of Edward III, um, famously the Cressy campaign of 1346, seems to follow a very, very similar pattern. Um, he, first of all, he takes a port town of Harfleur um, a siege that lasts a couple of weeks longer than he expects. Um, one of the first sieges that had cannon from an English point of view. Um, cannon had been around for a while, but anyway. Um, this is where we get the famous once more onto the breach quote from Shakespeare. Probably didn't said it, 
Uh, spoiler alert, he probably never said any of the stuff Shakespeare said he said. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get on to that. Rhyme Shakespeare. That's... Yeah, classic Will. Um, but yeah, Siege of Hofler, fairly successful, takes an important port town in Normandy, realises the French are massing an incredibly, you know, sizable, powerful, knight-based army. Um, again, very, very similar to the, to the 1346 uh, campaign. Um, the English army were much smaller, based around the English and Welsh longbow, which had been, you know, utilised by kings before. Um, kind of first picked up in the 1330s again by by Edward III, in case no one realises my my favourite, um, <laughs> who you know really starts to understand that the power of essentially the mass volley, um, 500 years before it was muskets. Um, so yeah, the French are you know heavy cavalry based, based around nobility and you know the power of the charge and heavily armoured knights with lances and all this, you know, the antithesis of this lightly, lightly armoured, very fast, very mobile, very, very deadly archer-based army. Um, but this army is hit quite badly with, again, this is up for debate. It's a very, very difficult thing to, to know for certain now, but I'll play down the middle um, just in case anybody gets upset. Um, this, the, the English army is hit by dysentery to some degree. Whether this army was uh, replenished by English, you know, ships coming from England, we don't really know. But essentially, Henry marches towards Calais, which is English-held territory, in an attempt to essentially go, I'm done with this, let's kind of go home. We've, we've done all right, let's come back next year when we're not having dysentery. Um, so Henry marches um, through Normandy, pretty much setting fire to it on the way, which was the thing to do. Um, you know, raiding, pillaging, you know, pretty much just destroying everything in their way to, to irritate um, and to, you know, weaken the, the position of an enemy um, without directly uh, coming into to contact with them. Because, you know, at this point, field battles were, were very rare. Um, you know, they were still very rare because their outcomes were incredibly volatile and you know, literally anything can happen, as, you know, I'll, I'll mention later. Um, on, on their way to Calais, they are being watched by a French army of perhaps two times as many men. Let's use rough figures of maybe 8,000 English to maybe, you know, 20,000 French. That's probably quite in the middle. Some say 12,000, some say 30,000, so I'll sit in the middle. And they're being watched by this French army that are looking an opportunity to, you know, to attack. Uh, against, eventually it gets to the point, again, very similar to Cressy, where the French army are able to get in front of the English before they get to Calais, uh, um, knowing that they have to fight them. They have to fight this much bigger force. Um, obviously, it is near the village of Azincourt, or Azincourt, and, um, the site of the battle isn't actually properly known. Uh, we have rough ideas. Um, but from my understanding of the battle, it was wedged between two um, heavily forested area on a slight hill with the French on top coming down towards the English lines. The night before the battle, um, so the 20, 
4th of October, the night of, um, 14, 15. Um, Henry apparently wanted his entire camp in silence. So the French had no idea kind of what was going on to the point where he even threatened to execute anybody that even spoke. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of this may be the myth that has been created around Henry V, due in part just to Shakespeare. Um, but either way, the next morning, um, both armies prepare in their usual fashion. Um, the French line up with their heavy knights and their men-at-arms. Um, and this is where the French numbers get a little bit, maybe it, it's a little bit of a negated point because many historians now say that the vast majority of the of the French forces, you know, the archers and, and the kind of the light infantry never even got involved in the battle, meaning that the numbers kind of weren't playing that much of a part. But either way, a massive host of knights and dismounted men-at-arms, so dismounted knights, um, we're essentially looking at this much smaller, no matter how many numbers you use, a smaller, on the face of it, weaker English form, force that had formed up in a crescent moon shape um, with archers forming up on the wings in the kind of wooded area and then in front of the main battle line where the, the few, maybe a thousand men-at-arms, English men-at-arms, um, were formed up in the middle with Henry right back in the middle. Um, again, similar to Cressy, the, uh, the Irish? The Archers? <laughs> I, don't know where I, I don't know where Ireland features in this. Uh, as far as I know, Ireland have no part in this. Um, the Archers have stakes that they, you know, sharpen to points, stick in the ground to protect themselves. Um, Henry's waiting. The French under Boutico, the French commander, is waiting. Neither of them really want to make the first move. So Henry does the unthinkable, the ill-advised, let's say, of moving his smaller force towards the French. Pick up your stakes, we'll move forward, and they move slightly forward. And this sends the French into a, you know, a fluster, a fury, whatever you want to call it. And basically all command is lost in the French army leading to a, a charge of French cavalry with literally nobody in control. Nobody has any idea what's going on, but, you know, the, the laws of chivalry, the rules of chivalry, you know, you have to be the first man in, you know, glory and all this, glory or death. Um, you know, and, and but this time the English archers have set up, they are ready with the stakes in the ground. And shockingly, it starts to rain. The, 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 the English weather, not even in England, but the bloody rain helps out Wish again. So, yeah, similar to Cressy. The ground is getting very, very, very muddy, very churned up. It's, it's October. It's, it's already an incredibly, you know, muggy time of the year. It's cold, it's wet, it's horrible. The French are coming. They're churning up more and more dirt. And at this point, the English arch is already in range. The longbows, you know, a 200-pound draw strength longbow is is not you know a, a, the toy that you may have had as a child they, these were incredible pieces of machinery that really changed the physical shape of, of englishmen's body um you know with the, just the, the pure strength it needed to pull these these giant bows um and they were able to hit targets hundreds of yards away and and they did they you know they 
again, the 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 draw strengths and the the range and the and the fire rate of archers were is up for some debate. Um, but either way, thousands of archers were now firing at these oncoming knights, who were just peppered with arrows. Whether they were piercing the armor, they can play, pierce plate armor. It is it is a thing they could do. Whether they did or not, regardless, being hit by literally thousands of projectiles as you are going at them as well. You know, you're not a passive force in this. You are going at it as well. You know, these thousands of arrows are just hitting you, hitting your horse, killing your horse from under you. The blunt force trauma alone would have been enough to, at the very least, render you completely useless. Um, so as the cavalry are moving forward, they're getting pinned down in this quagmire that's forming. You know, the men at arms are marching up behind them. They're getting stuck in the mud. They're getting you know, hit from literally from all sides by thousands of arrows, gets to the point where the English archers run out of ammo and they down bow, pick up their mallets that they use to hammer in the stakes, axes, knives, anything they can get their hold on, anything they can get their hands on, sorry. And they just go at it in the middle of the of the melee along with the, the men at arms. And at this point, like I said, the numbers really count for nothing at this point because the rest of the French army that, you know, they, they kind of turn tail and eventually leave. Um, there is a black mark on the Battle of Agincourt um, with a few theories and a few kind of, you know, maybe, you know, ideas, depending on your opinion of Henry V. But the English were able to capture, because like I said, these arrows weren't necessarily killing these knights. And it wasn't the thing to do to kill a knight. It was to, you know, capture and ransom um, honorably on you know ransom you, you back to your to your liege um i.e charles VI of france um so they captured you know thousands as far as i'm aware french you know french soldiers um and henry made a decision that you know would now be considered a war crime he executed or at least you know called for the execution somebody called for an execution of of these french prisoners um whether this was out of pure bloodlust, which some people would say, you know, this is an opportunity to decimate the flower of French nobility. You know, no one's really going to say anything if you do it, other than, you know, two historians in 2021. <laughs> um, or, you know, there was, there was theories that, you know, a, a, you know, a group of knights had got round and they were raiding the baggage train of the English. So, you know, they had to kill these prisoners to be able to fight in the rear guard. Or, you know, they thought a second wave was coming and didn't have enough men to both fight and guard the prisoners. So it was a simple, you know, necessity execution, weird sentence to say. Um, but either way, thousands of French to relatively few English were, were killed and some were still captured um, at the, you know, incredibly famous Battle of Agincourt in 1415 that ultimately in a very, very long-winded way, led the foundation for the Treaty of Troyes five years later. And the the success that Henry demonstrates, that Henry V demonstrates, then is phenomenal. And his military leadership again is is next level. Um, seems to be a lot of echoes of not only Edward, but um, the Black Prince as well in some of his actions. And it's yeah, it's fantastic to see how well he actually did in France. And again, I'm going to use the word juxtaposition. Henry VI was a massive juxtaposition to his father. 
Um, and to use the word success in France for Henry the fifth is not something that you can say for um for Henry the sixth. Um so you know, we just meant his his minority ended in 1437. He's of age. He he is his personal rule has begun and he can he can rule England as he sees fit. Um and almost immediately he pursues a policy of peace with France. Um, you know, we see we see the rise of Charles VII here and his his continuation of a French centralization policy of power, really. Um, but for so like, such a short period of time since his father's um victory with the Treaty of Troyes, is it's amazing really that there's been such a reversal in this policy. Um, and this is kind of pushed by nobles such as Suffolk, uh, Cardinal Beaufort, against nobles such as Duke of, uh, the Duke of Gloucester and the Duke of York. So we kind of see a unravelling of everything that Henry V had done. You know, unified nobility. You know, that's, that's gone. Uh, power of France, and that's gone as well. Um, so immediately we see a weak king. Immediately we see a juxtaposition. And it's it echoes back to Richard II and Edward II, you know, picking favourites to help him rule England, picking picking favourites who dictate policy. And that kind of ends up as being a theme of his rule, much like war and success was a theme of Henry V. And uh, one example, I'm not entirely sure how you feel about her, of uh, this peace policy in France is the marriage of Margaret of Anjou to Henry VI. Um, and usually there'd be a dowry if you married such an important woman. She was the niece of Charles VII. Uh, but instead, it's reversed, which is very uncommon at this stage. There, the English give Maine to the French in return for marrying her, which is a bizarre move, really, at this point, isn't it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And I think, you know, I I will not pretend I know. I'm I'm no expert on on the later 15th century and and the wars of the roses um i have a soft spot for medieval english queens i think they're incredibly hard done to in general um so yeah i think you know being who she was margaret of anjou was in a difficult position as catherine of valois was you know the the eventual wife of henry v mother of, of henry the sixth being French in England was difficult, um, as I'm assuming the other way was when that did happen, rarely. But I think giving the, you know, the, the dowry of, of, of Maine as, a, as, a, as a, an anti-dowry as such, it shows, like you said, it shows the, the complete opposite in the abilities and the perceived abilities of Henry V, this, you know, the victor of Agincourt, the you know, the destroyer of France to his pretty, you know, weak, meek and mild son in Henry VI, who probably just went to Maine. You know, that, that seems fair. He's it, probably a very likable yeah. bloke, Henry VI, whereas Henry V was probably, you know, a bit difficult to, to get on with because he constantly wanted to, you know, have a scrap. But you know, it's it's the 21st century, and in the 15th century, there were rules. There were, you know, there were, you know, things that you would do and things that you wouldn't do. And 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, Henry VI's queen um, was incredibly hard done to. I'm not saying that I'm necessarily a fan of, of her as a political player, but let's say as an individual and a... For, for, the, for the first, you know, first few years, at least, a pretty innocent um, bystander in this absolute, not to, you know, ruin your part of this podcast, you know, pretty terrible rain. Yeah, oh, a complete mess, which we're going to look at as well. But yeah, he just, he's completely screwed over his, his, his father's entire policy, um, which leads to Margaret actually coming to England and starting to grow more influential. Um, you know, she's, she's raised in a family where the women in her family are incredibly powerful. You know, they ruled Anjou uh, whilst their, their husbands and their, their fathers were away fighting in the Hundred Years' War against Henry V. Um, and for it to come full circle, uh, to have Henry marrying someone like that is, is a demonstration of that reversal of policy. Uh, and she she becomes more influential over Henry. You know, you've just said he's a weak and ineffectual king. Um, and she starts to take an active role in politics. And she she defends, to give credit to her, I'm not the biggest fan of Margaret of Anjou, but she, she defends Henry with every ounce of her being. And in 1447, you see that. She calls a parliament with Henry. Or she implores Henry to call a parliament. Henry calls parliament with his supporters and in that they arrest one of his biggest opposition uh, members the Duke of Gloucester for treason now it's not entirely clear if he had committed treason but it was it was thought that it was a, a move to protect Henrician power um, and the royalist policy of peace in France now Humphrey Duke of Gloucester was arrested um, and he died of a heart attack after being arrested. Some said it was murder, some said he was poisoned, but he passed away uh, after his arrest. And this sends the political situation into an absolute frenzy. Um, you know, you have the heir of the throne, Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, because Margaret of Anjou and Henry haven't had a son or a child yet. So the, the heir has been murdered, essentially, is the way, way people are seeing it. And you see this fracturing in the nobility, where the Duke of York takes on the side which wants to continue fighting France, continue Henry V's policy, and the royalist side, which is Suffolk, Somerset, and Cardinal Beaufort, who are trying to keep that peace with France. So there is a real fracturing, and Margaret of Anjou really hates um, the Duke of York, and it's, it's seen later on in their reign. So there's a massive splintering, really. Now Suffolk, kind of, he's one of one of Henry's favourites, one of his best mates, uh, and because of how weak and ineffectual Henry is, he rules a covenant. He rules through Henry through his um, household, and he eventually becomes so unpopular that the House of Commons uh, lodges several complaints against him to the king. They lobby the king to remove him from power. They want him executed for treason, but. Of course, as we've seen with past kings such as Edward II, you never, you never see a king executing his favourite, yet alone executing them for treason. So he sends Suffolk into exile. 
and Suffolk is caught by some pirates off the Kentish coast and he is murdered. Uh, he's beheaded with a rusty sword, if I remember off the top of my head. So it's it's not a very nice death and it kind of demonstrates what's going to happen later on. And that's only 1450. You know, Henry's been ruling for 13 years and there's already a massive mess there. And it is a hangover from his from his minority, but it's, you know, he's been 13 years for his personal rule and he's not fixed any of this mess. So it is a lot of it is possibly on him but he is such a weak and ineffectual king, it's hard to blame him. Now, after Suffolk is removed from power, Somerset becomes the new favourite. And with Somerset becoming the favourite, he removes the Duke of York from his position as the commander of France or the French force in France. And suddenly you see the unravelling of everything that Henry had done in France, we lose all lands but Calais, which to the English nobles, those English nobles have lost so much land that they're losing revenue from, they're losing men from, and they're losing all political advantage that they had in France from. So Somerset has not only unraveled Henry's policy and ruined Henry the Sixth's power in France, he's also removed the nobility's power. And this makes him incredibly unpopular. And the Duke of York was angry that he lost a lot of land in this and he lost his title. So there's, there's a huge amount of animosity between the Duke of York and the Duke of Somerset. And furthermore, the Duke of Somerset wasn't even royal blood. So he's not supposed to have that title of Duke. It's a title that's reserved for those of royal blood, such as Duke of York, who is descended from the Mortimer line, as you were saying earlier. So it's an incredibly important family, that. Um, and the Duke of York at this point now is the heir to the throne as Gloucester has died. And we see these, we see these animosities rise and fall. Uh, but in 1452, the situation gets so bad that the Duke of York has to be instated into the council. It's been too long to have the heir removed from the council. And he begins to, he begins to, put in some meaningful reforms he reforms debts he reforms the royal household which is very good from someone who has such a lot of animosity between different parties and he rules as a neutral which is highly commendable for this era to have the law of one of the most important laws in the country rule from a neutral standpoint i think it's rarely ever seen in the medieval period really i think you're the you're more of a medieval expert than i am so it's 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 bizarre at this point. Um, but then Somerset obviously doesn't like it, and York is removed from his position, uh, which angers York, and his any idea of neutrality goes out the window. Now he allies up with the Neville family, who are the rivals, the Percys that you mentioned earlier, and the Nevilles feel hard done to because the Percys were a favourite of the Lancastrians. So there is now a massive splintering in power, massive splintering in nobility between Henry York, uh, Henry of York, or not Henry, Richard Duke of York and his party, the Yorkists, and Somerset uh, and his party, the Lancastrians. Now, you would know this as well. Um, you never go after the king 
unless you're Henry Bolingbroke, you always go for their advisors. And even Henry Bolingbroke went for the advisors. You always, you know, say that the king has evil counsellors. That's the most used term, I think it is. King has evil counsellors. The evil counsellors must go. We must save England and the king from his evil counsellors. And that was what's happening. That is essentially what the beginning of the War of the Roses was about. It was about removing an evil counsellor and Richard Duke York taking his position as heir to the throne or most important magnate in England and guiding Henry through his reign. And to an extent, this did happen um, through the War of the Roses. But the War of the Roses kind of kicked off because Richard showed that he wasn't going to act neutral in 1453 when Henry VI had a mental breakdown. He went into catatonic shock, catatonic state, uh, which is a feature of Henry VI's reign throughout. Um, So Richard was made Lord Protector whilst Henry was unresponsive, laying in bed. He didn't even recognise his own son when he was born. So that's the kind of troubles that we're dealing with with Henry VI. Um, And when Richard is Lord Protector, he completely ignores the neutrality. He arrests Somerset. He puts him in the Tower for treason. And that's where we kind of see the War War of the Roses emerge with the first Battle of St. Albans, where it's Somerset versus York. Now, Somerset is murdered at this battle. And you see these battles, you know, ebb and flow throughout the 50s, the 1450s. And whoever holds the king holds the power. Whoever holds the king is ruling England at that point. And it it happens several times. Uh, York is attainted, which means his titles and his land is taken off him. Um, But at the Battle of Northampton, 1460, Richard captures Henry. And, you know, he declares himself as much as way Henry V did, he declares himself for the act of accord as Henry's heir. Richard's family will inherit the throne from Henry and Richard will rule for Henry in return for the throne. And that was done through the Act of Accord, an incredibly important part of the Wars of the Roses. But Margaret of Anjou, who we looked at earlier, fight tooth and nail for her family. And at this point, she's fighting for her son's inheritance as well. She comes back. And at Wakefield on the 30th of December, 1460, she meets Richard, Duke of York. And he, he is murdered at this battle, trying to flee with his eldest son. And she takes the power again. But then it's my personal favourite king, Richard, Duke of York's son, Edward IV, returns and he, he wins at the Battle of Towton and claims the throne for himself. You know, that's a very... rough rain roughly rain um for for henry you know it's full of bloodshed it's full of battles much like henry the fifth but it's not a successful one he is mentally incapable of ruling throughout this whole entire period uh battle of northampton he was singing lullabies underneath a tree and the man was absolutely incapable of ruling um and that's why we have this situation because he just couldn't rule 
in any way, shape or form. And after 1453, his mental state declines so much um, that it just, it gets to a point where it's probably safer to not have him on the throne. And you can see that when Edward takes the throne, he doesn't even commit regicide. He imprisons Henry because what do you do? You know, this man is so incapable and so mentally ill, even by that standard, it, it, fee, it will feel un, un, unfair to murder this man. Now, Henry V had one reign and a very, a very great reign, as you've outlined, Chris. But I think Henry VI is in, within enviable company, along with Edward IV, the fact that he ruled not once, but twice. Um, and you know, he didn't really rule for a second one. Um, Edward IV, who I'll who we're looking at next video, fell out with two of his leading nobles, and they decided to take the imprisoned Henry VI and readept him, uh, which means to put him back on the throne. Uh, but he did nothing through this period. He was a puppet king. He was so he'd had such a descent that he was just unable to rule, and they ruled on his behalf. Um, but then six months later, Edward returns, takes the throne back, he defeats Warwick and Clarence, and he again imprisons Henry. Now, you know through medieval studies, Chris, that he really should have learned his lesson at this point, and he did. And Henry VI was, and we know, and we, we can tell through having his exhumed body, Henry VI was brutally violently murdered um there's blood on his hair for his skeleton um so that was the end of henry the sixth uh brutally murdered in the tower of london possibly and that kind of brings together a very difficult rough reign and perhaps one that lasted perhaps a bit too long compared to just, just a few years too long yeah just a few <laughs> compared to your well, henry the fifth <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think one of the most interesting kind of debates and arguments about these two chaps is would it have been the same story if henry the fifth had have lived longer you know would would Henry V have come into the same problems that Henry VI would have done? Did Henry VI come into them because his father died so young? Would Henry V have, you know, got a more favourable marriage for his son? Would he, you know, would France have been able to, you know, build themselves back up, which they did in, in this kind of 1420s and 30s, and, you know, get themselves back on an even playing field? I think, you know, we could argue and discuss that, all night um i'm happy to but um it's 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 a really really interesting point i feel like through this period in general you seem to get good king bad king good king bad king with the the odds you know yeah henry the fourth decent you know you know edward the first edward the second edward the third richard the second henry the fourth henry the fifth henry the sixth like it kind of you know it, it seems like very much cause and effect um, and as a, as a historian, I guess I'm intrigued as to, you know, there's no way to scientifically boil it down, but 
how much the transition of powers when they did happen, you know, Edward III to his grandson, you know, whereas he probably wished, you know, to make the Black Prince, you know, his, his eldest son, Edward, um, king, you know, he gave a, you know, 10 year old boy the reins, um, again, another minority, um, versus, you know, a usurpation, whether it's through parliament or not, with, with Henry IV, into a direct father-son of, of, a, of a usurped line, you know, the Lancastrians, in from fourth, Henry IV to Henry V, to an infant son into Henry VI. Like, there's, there was never a, there was never a clean transition. And to be honest, thinking, there's very rarely a clean transition. You know, Edward I to Edward II was, but Edward II, as, as you, you know, mentioned in, in previous episodes, was, was pretty pants as well. Um, but yeah, very, very contrasting reigns for sure. Yeah, and we haven't, we haven't had a peaceful, um, a proper uh, inheritance of the crown since Edward the First to the Edward the Second. Edward the Second was usurped by his his wife and his son. Um, and I think it's important to note, as Dan Jones says it very well. Of course, Dan Jones says it very well. The the mystique I'm of the crown. Trying to Dan Jones there. <laughs> I've got mine here as well. <laughs> <laughs> the the mystique of the crown has been eroded at this point. You know, there's there's been two usurpations at this point, and the end by the end of Henry the Sixth, there's been three usurpations. You know, there's there's very little mystique on this crown. It's no longer that divine right. It's no longer that straight line from William the Conqueror. Uh, and you can see the effects of that through the, the number of rebellions, the number of people not only going for the king's councillors, but actually going for the king. Um, and I think that's important to, to point out throughout this period. Now, the real reason why we're here, Chris, is to make a judgment, as we do as historians, to say whether Henry V or Henry VI were a good king or not. Now, this is entirely your own subjective opinion um, as a historian. Um, so I'd, I'd be curious to know if you thought Henry V was a good king or not. It's not very often that I can't form an opinion, but I think Henry V is one of the most difficult kings in, in all of the history I've ever looked at to, you know, give a kind of yes-no answer to. I, on the face of it, want to say, yes, Henry V was, you know, arguably one of the most successful of, of the medieval English kings. I think that's a pretty undisputable fact in terms of land gained in the shortest amount of time, a secure realm, which is, again, we touched on briefly, is not a guarantee of his successors and his predecessors. It's very, very, very easy to play up to the achievements, the military achievements of Henry V. Agincourt, as I've said a few times now, is arguably one of the most famous battles in medieval history. If, you know, certainly English history, it's up there with the Battle of Hastings and the Battle of Waterloo later in, in 1815. How much of an effect Agincourt had on actually, you know, history in general? You know, not much. It was a, contrary to my earlier point, it was not insignificant, but 
multiple parts of a puzzle had to be built to create, you know, the, the Treaty of Troyes and the succession to two crowns by his son. So, you know, we've, we're very, very fortunate, but we're also very unfortunate that we have all of these sources and all of this material about this period. You know, William Shakespeare, I've spoken about him a lot because his Henry V pretty much forms our, as a collective, opinion of, of the King Henry V. It's not an accurate retelling of history at all. It's a play. Um, it's a bloody good play. Um, it's, you know, as I said, it's, it's probably my favourite work, you know, of Shakespeare's work. Um, but it, it creates this very favourable, very, very noble opinion of a man that was very, very ruthless. He executed prisoners. He executed his own cousins. You know, he ruled with, with an iron fist um, because he had to. I think both these men, and I'm not sure if you're going to say a similar thing, I feel like they were both a creation of their circumstances more than anything. Henry V was able to inherit a much more stable position than his father was and his son. He was able to rely on England back home being, you know, all good. Everything was fine to go and, and you know, hit France where it hurt, at France at its weakest as well. Whereas Henry VI had arguably the opposite, a minority government versus an incredibly strong France. Overall, I do think Henry V was a remarkable king. Let's use the word remarkable because that's kind of ambiguous. I think his very, very short reign was filled with genuine success. I would love in some kind of simulation, and I hope this happens at some point, to be able to see what would have happened is if Henry V didn't die at 35 or 36, he returns to England, he raises his son, and Henry VI becomes the man he was supposed to be. Do we have the Wars of the Roses? Do we have the House of Tudor? Who I really don't like, just for the record. Yeah. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a Tudorist. I'm, I'm a Yorkist through and through and a, and a Plantagenet at that. But yeah, I think, again, victim, for lack of a word, of, of circumstance, the pair of them. Henry V very much had a better one, but he had to rely on what he knew, which was war. You know, he was born into a situation of rebellion. He was raised in a situation of rebellion. You know, he, he had to be ruthless because it's all he's ever known. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Henry a positive review, Henry V, but not maybe as much so as as people may ever thought I might have said. Okay, uh, that's a very that's a very good judgment, uh, and I like Thank how you. you I like how you used ambiguous terms to support yourself as well. For Henry the Sixth, I'm there's no there's no there's no dancing around it. He, he was a bad king. He was a poor king. But like you, I'm going to caveat it. Um, I don't think Henry VI had a choice in whether to be a good king or a bad king. Um, you know, like, you can clearly see that Richard II made decisions to be tyrannical. Um, you can clearly see that Edward II made decisions that were poor and made him a bad king. I don't 
think that Henry set out or I don't think that Henry made these decisions deliberately made these decisions that made him a bad or a poor king um I don't I don't think it's his fault um he had you know that damnosa hereditas you know damned inheritance you know how are you going to live up to the reputation of your father after he has just conquered more of France than the France the French rule you know that's that's a very difficult situation to walk into for anybody you know it's like Cristiano Ronaldo's son is going to have a damned inheritance because you know how is he ever going to live up to that kind of that kind of thing um and then again his poor mental health <laughs> he he possibly scuff, uh, suffered from schizophrenia you know as I mentioned in was Henry VI the bad king uh, my video from oh God, nearly a year ago um he suffered with several mental health issues you know schizophrenia depression stuff these kind of things can affect your judgment um and his mental capacity and capabilities dropped severely from 19 uh, from 1453 so i don't think he was i don't think he was at fault you know like i mentioned earlier he had no royal apprenticeship no one taught him how to be king he had no role role model he had you know dukes of bedford and gloucester but they were noblemen who again they were the brothers of Henry V, they didn't know how to be king. They were born as nobles. They weren't born to be two like two regions. So no one around him had much of that experience. And yes, he chose poor advisors and played favourites. But it's very clear that he's a man who just wanted to be liked. He wanted to be left to be religious. He wanted to grow up and have people like him and have friends. And people took advantage of that, such as the Duke of Somerset. So, yes, he was a bad king, but unlike some of the previous ones I've spoken about, I don't think he he made those decisions deliberately. I think that's a incredibly fair telling of Henry the Sixth. Um, I couldn't have really put it better myself. Um, I think the point of choice is not actually an angle I've ever thought about before. So it's it's a really really great point. I think. I'm not going to say Henry V chose to be a good king, but you know he was, you know, he was in his twenties when he became king. He was he was old enough. You know, I'm, I'm 28 years old. If I was suddenly, maybe this is a bit of a stretch of a, of a metaphor, but if I was suddenly king tomorrow, that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, I quite like that. Um, if I was suddenly king tomorrow, I would be able to use a, you know, an almost 30 year old mindset to make decisions. But if, you know, from one years old with no father and a mother, I wasn't really allowed to interact with, would I probably just be a tyrant or a recluse? And you see that with Richard II and Henry VI. Um, I like the comparison to Edward II. As well, uh, he he's someone that I have a little bit of a soft spot for. To be fair, again, another man that I think truly just wanted to be liked, um, a man who you know liked thatching and and digging trenches. Not that either of those I would consider pastimes, but you know, a simple man after a simple existence. And as much as you know, everyone is born into their situation. So was Henry the Sixth, as as was Henry the Fifth. And how you react to that sometimes isn't your choice. 
so yeah i think i think we've both made fair assessments and i think hopefully people agree if people have another opinion please drop them in the comments below it'd be nice to see what everyone else's opinion is now yeah definitely i'm gonna recommend um some books now first i think people are gonna be sick of the first one uh which is gwen's let me get it gwen's kings and queens the indispense oh for god's sake i always do this let me go choose virtual background over there we go so it is gwen's kings and queens indispensable guide to england and her monarchs i can't recommend this one enough to people uh it's got fantastic sailing points on every single monarch in in british history it even has a family tree to brutus uh at the beginning of the book so i I think it's a a strong candidate and then second of all i hope you might have chosen this one if it does cover uh is the hollow crown um i was literally looking for my copy (laughs) of the hollow crown uh you just you can't beat it really um it's a really great book it's dan jones uh and i think i've already recommended the plantagenets and that one follows through unfortunately there is a blind spot between the two books of henry the fourth so if dan jones wants to write something on henry the fourth that'd be nice uh but you know fantastic book great sailing guide uh not not sailing guide, great narrative guide to the wars of the roses and really good bits on henry the sixth and then finally i don't have a copy with me uh but it is aj pollard's wars of the roses or war of the roses um it's something that my, my teacher in sixth form used for a insane amount of detailed notes which put me through not only sixth form but university um so i definitely recommend that book and i'll make sure all these books are in the description below for you all now chris you got any book recs yeah absolutely i mean you you did mention two of the books that i would mention i'm more of a i like to read around a subject as well so some of mine are um, a little bit more around the topic but yeah hollow crown is an absolute must for anybody wanting to learn anything about the wars of the roses and the reasons we get to that point in history obviously by the really sound probably dan jones uh, <laughs> who anybody who knows me you know dan if you're watching thanks i'm a, I'm a big fan and um, also the <laughs> oh that, that'd be wonderful um um yeah yeah write some on henry the fourth if you are watching because uh yeah there is a blind spot in my knowledge to be fair because of you uh, not because of you yeah. anyway uh <laughs> digress um surprisingly i'm gonna recommend a book that i've talked a little bit down in this and that is henry the fifth by shakespeare uh, it's in my work bag which is over there um so i'm not gonna get it because i'm not gonna stand up um <laughs> but it is a fantastic you know playbook however you want to kind of however you want to digest that um dramatic telling of mainly the battle of agincourt and the the run-up to that don't read it as a history read it as a you know as you would watch you know the king um, or any dramatic performance of henry v um agincourt has a billion books on it uh, my favorite is by Anne curry just called agincourt um, it's a really really comprehensive telling of battle the running up to and the uh, the the effects of such um but my ultimate my favorite which i haven't got with me because i read it as an audiobook uh, last year 
one of the best books I've ever listened to. I don't know how people feel about audiobooks. Yeah. I'm a big believer in them. As a slow reader, I adore audiobooks. Um, but it's by Ian Mortimer, who is another phenomenal historian of this period. And it's uh, 1415, uh, Year of Glory. And it just focuses on the year 1415, but it goes day at a time. So essentially 365 days of history. If you haven't read it, I fully recommend it. It is great to listen to as well. Um, it's um, and and you know Ian says this at the start of the book. It's a different way to to you know to to talk history, and you know it might not work every time. It might not work, but it works really well in this in this way. And again, it's a great way to frame the Agincourt campaign um, for Henry. Um, but yeah, I could go on about you know what books you should read. Uh, most of them are by Dan Jones or Ian Mortimer, but yeah. um, I am I am a sucker, sucker for those dudes. Um, and I'm a sucker for books, so I completely. <laughs> so, thank you very much, Chris. You've been thank you absolutely awesome, and you've really enlightened you. us on on Henry V, someone I don't know a lot about, and the Battle of Agincourt, which I've never touched on, except from reading your posts. So. You're a great historian. You've got loads of great content online. Uh, unfortunately, both of us have been um, not helped by the Instagram algorithm, algorithm at the moment. But if people want to go, not not if people want to go and see you online, <laughs> people want to go and read your content. Uh, where can they find you? Yes, thank thank you for that. That was very very kind of you to say. Um, and yeah, Instagram sort your algorithm out. Um, you can find me at Chris Riley History uh, on Instagram uh, or at Chris Rye R.I. History on Twitter because Twitter's got a word count on their uh, usernames, which is kind of tucky. Um, you can also follow the Historians Magazine at the Historians Magazine um, and the Historians Magazine.com, and where you can um, read and purchase physical copies of the magazine. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something I've always wanted to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna drop a little promo with a discount code in if that's okay oh yeah that's that's completely fine yeah um if anybody is after a physical copy of the historians magazine you can use code chris 10 for 10 percent off never done that but there you go so oh, any of go. you listening get 10 percent off why not it's christmas what a great christmas present that is a history of jackson exclusive everyone as well so that's the first time i've been Absolutely. able to say that <laughs> and then what a day <laughs> And then you've got the History Corner blog, right? If I'm... Yes. So, yeah, the History Corner blog, which is a website. Um, you can find it at History Corner blog on Instagram or at thehistorycorner.org. Um, we have articles, book reviews, film reviews, TV reviews. Um, we also have a partnership with the aforementioned uh, History Emporium and Pals podcast. The wonderful Ollie, who, you know, me and Jackson have both worked with several times before. Um, he's been a massive supporter of both of our kind of uh, journeys into this very, very strange world of social media-based history. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm super keen on getting other people to get involved as well. So, you know, if you you don't want to write for the website, you know, send me a message on Instagram, send us a, you know, tweet me, whatever, whatever kids do these days, get in touch. We can have a conversation. History is accessible. History is fun. And it's only like that if we if we share it. Um, and also, I've got 
something really cool that's happening in 2022, um, which I'm just going to say that between myself and Rosie at the Historians magazine is hopefully going to take everything that we're doing to the next level. And that's where I'm going to leave it there. Oh, that's, that's really enticing. I love that. It's good, that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then in the meantime, if you want to keep up with everything History of Jackson related, head to the social media links in the description below because Twitter and so on have all got different uh, links. It's the first time I'm going to drop the TikTok in there as well. Uh, that is at History with Jackson. Uh, if you are someone I teach, thank you very much for watching. Uh, thank you very much for finding this YouTube and my TikTok. I hope you're enjoying it. And if you want to keep up with everything History of Jackson related, please head to www.historyofjackson.co.uk. So thank you very much for watching, guys. Thank you very much for coming on, Chris. And if you enjoyed this, please leave a review or rating on whatever podcast uh, platform you listen to or a like on YouTube. So thank you very much, guys. And I'll see you all next time when we're looking at Edward the Fourth.